0: Hello and welcome to the New Books in Food. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva, and today's discussion takes us to the shores of the Baltic Sea to learn more about the cuisines and culture of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, three nations known collectively as the Baltic states. But to lump these three countries together is to do their individual cultures a grave disservice. Each has its own national flavors and traditions, and each national cuisine is currently enjoying a lively renaissance and renewed interest in traditional dishes. And there's no better guide to this corner of the European Union than my guest today, London-based food writer and storyteller cook, Zusa Zak, who is here to discuss her new cookbook, Amber and Rye, a Baltic Food Journey. Filled with history, stories, marvelously evocative photography of people, places, and plates, and of course, intriguing and delicious recipes, Amber and Rye is the perfect introduction to the magnificent cuisine of the three individual Baltic states. And I'm so delighted that Zuza was able to join us today. Zuza, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. It's a great honor to be here. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you. Now, before we dive into the book, which is coming out in the United States, I think, um, in September, I wonder if we could begin with a bit of background. Uh, you describe yourself as a storyteller cook. I love this um, this, this title. And having read both your books, um, I think this is spot on. You weave all kinds of history, culture, and personal anecdote into your discussions of cuisine. I wonder if you could tell us how you found your way into food writing.
1: Yes, I was. I was thinking about that last night. Where did it all start? (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, And it started long before the book came out. I mean, um, of course, food was always a big part of my life and a way which I connected with my homeland, with Poland. And yet food writing is its own thing, really, isn't it? And there are so many ways of approaching it and um, when I was in my 20s my friend who was also a big foodie he was Chinese and he was an amazing cook and he gave me Claudia Rodin's new book of Middle Eastern food Um, and it doesn't that book doesn't have any pictures in it or anything like that but it's very anthropological and it talks about the movement of peoples and how the food traveled from place to place and um and really after reading that book my eyes opened to a whole new way of thinking about food and culture and um it was 10 years before i published my
0: first book well that's a one that's a wonderful book and i remember reading that myself when i was um first living in russia and just beginning to think about the the sort of the um the origins of, of the cuisine that I was just discovering. You, you wrote about um, Poland, which is your home country, in your first book. Can you share the motivation and, and inspiration behind looking now at the Baltic countries? Absolutely.
1: Um, so after Polska, it took me a little while to publish another book. I was really looking for you know that inspiration you have to write a book, the, the inspiration that you need to you know start on such a big endeavor. And um, I've always been interested in Vilnius because that's where my grandma was from and she talked about Vilnius endlessly in my childhood. So I was always interested um, in, in visiting Lithuania and in just sort of seeing what's going on in that part of the world. And when I started delving into it a little bit, I saw that they were having a foodie renaissance a bit like what was going on in Poland at the moment, which I find so exciting. It's kind of, um, I feel like it's the hot communist hangover is finally over. And, <laughs> we are, and we are finally kind of rediscovering what it is that makes us, us. And the same thing is happening in the Baltic States. So I was very excited to, to discover that. And um, yes, some uh, journalists even called it the new Nordic, because That's also what happened with Scandinavia, and the Baltic states are also influenced by Scandinavia. Um, So that was the first kind of thing that piqued my interest. But then, um, as I was researching the Baltic states, um, my dad had a DNA test and discovered that he was half Baltic, which Ah. seemed surprising because my (laughs) grandma was from Lithuania, and yet she always said she was from a Polish family. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, so that did surprise us, and uh, when I dug into that a little bit, I learned that some people who were actually genetically Lithuanian uh, felt Polish, and this is clearly how um, how my grandma felt about her identity.
0: Um, and is this is this from the the Polish Lithuanian? Uh, is is it, it's the Commonwealth, isn't it? Um, exactly. In the Middle Ages, so I suppose there's a lot of genetic uh, crossover.
1: Uh, correct. So basically, Poland and Lithuania, they always had very strong ties. And yet, um, they actually became one country for over 200 years, and um, until the partitions, and then they both ceased to exist. So <laughs> there's a lot of shared history there. And and yes, it's just a matter of identity. I guess some people felt more Lithuanian than some people felt Polish. It, it turns out that the Polish was actually the the main language for the aristocracy there, even if they mm-hmm. were Lithuanian for a while.
0: Right. And, and so and when did you decide to expand from Lithuania out to Estonia and Latvia as well?
1: Well, that felt like a natural progression because uh, since World War <clears> One, <throat> they are known as the Baltic States. Of course, after that, they lost their independence again and uh, the history is very complicated. And yet um, I feel that even though they uh, preserve their own local traditions um, and regional differences, uh, they they are happy to be known as the Baltic states. You know, I think there's strength in numbers. and Absolutely. After everything that's happened in history, I think they feel stronger and more confident as the Baltic states. And there is a lot of shared, um, not only history, but also ingredients and flavours and mentality.
0: Right. And let's talk a little bit about the... Um... Uh, title of the book because rye is is I think common to all three of the of the countries one can't escape rye in all of its forms in the Baltic but I was intrigued by amber because um, I. I, we can't eat Amber, as far as I know. But uh, then I came to this lovely section um, in the part on Lithuania in your book where you write so movingly about your grandmother and her longing to return to the wilderness of her youth. And it, it struck me that Amber is a great um, way to preserve something. And was it was it that aspect of it that fits so well into the title of your book?
1: Oh, you know, that's a beautiful and very poetic way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to I wish it was.
0: Well it is now.
1: <laughs> it is now. It is now. Let's say yes to that one because that is that was such a beautiful way of looking at it. And yes, that's also true. Yeah. Um, it is a way of preserving, of course. Um, with rye, um, I felt that life was um, it was rye is a very life-giving crop and that grows really well in those kind of countries. So with rye, it was kind of like life and the practical side. Um, and then with Amber, uh, there is like a, definitely a poetic element to Amber. It felt felt like that was the sort of story element of the book in a way, because you have the rye, which is the food, and then the Amber, which has kind of been there since the beginning of time. Uh, well, since the beginning of humanity anyway. And, um, and it's had... All these stories, you know, um, which I write about at the back of the book with the Amber Trail, you know, from from the humans who first found it on the beach to the Greeks and the Roman empires um, and, and then the Teutonic order and how amber was used and seen. And it's so kind of, um, it feels like it's a way of putting these countries in a kind of greater relevance, giving them a, giving them a sort of uh, a meaning within history that isn't just what we know. It's this kind of beautiful object. And if you touch amber, it sort of, it warms when you touch mm. it. It's got a very kind of tactile, and there is like almost like a spiritual aspect to it. It feels like it. It feels like you're connected to it. It apparently gives off some kind of oil. As well, some people found and some even took it as medicine in the past. Right. Yeah, Yeah. so um, I felt there was sort of like, yeah, a deeper kind of element there that I wanted to tie in to the Baltic states.
0: Well, I think it's a perfect title for, for your book, which combines, you know, cuisine and tradition and, and the sort of the, the heart of, of these three countries. I'm going to ask you to put your history hat on, your historian hat on now, Susa, so because I know that when I moved to Riga and I said, Oh, I'm, I'm moving to Riga, uh, I got a lot of quizzical looks from friends, particularly in the United States. Um, who were a little bit embarrassed to ask where Riga was. Um, And um, so I I think for the benefit of of our listeners, I'd love you to walk us through each of these three countries um, and kind of give us like a potted history of each. Uh, They share so much, but also help us understand how, how distinct they are. It's a, it's a tall order, I know.
1: It's, it's a tall order to do it in such a small kind of... <laughs> I, will, I will do my best. Okay. <laughs> and any historian well, listening of course, forgive for me listeners, for if, <laughs> I,
0: But I also want to encourage listeners to get the book because you do it so beautifully
1: in the book. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean by that because um, actually here on the underground in London, I saw posters that were um, advertising Vilnius and it was the lost city of Atlantis underwater. <laughs> <laughs> and the and the line was Vilnius, amazing, wherever it is. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> not that's untrue.
0: Crazy. That's not untrue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, I think a lot of people don't know. It does feel like it's off the beaten track. And yet all three cities are World UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So Uh, You can sort of, so if you know, you know, you know, you have Tallinn with its amazing old town, which is sort of the biggest one I've ever been to on up on a hill um, with some beautiful uh, medieval walls surrounding it. And a lot of them are still completely intact. Um, And then you have the kind of pockets of uh, hip areas, you know, because it feels like Estonia is kind of somewhere in between the past and the present. You know, you've got the the beautiful history there as well. But then it feels very forward thinking. I think it's where Skype was invented. And mm. it's, um yeah, so it's kind of like you you have 4G everywhere you go. In the middle of a forest in Estonia, you'll have 4G. So it's very forward thinking. And yet it's got this um, amazing kind of history everywhere as well. And then the beautiful nature, of course. And I write about Tallinn uh, in the book. And I write about Tartu, which is a kind of university town. Uh, university town where um, a lot of people end up because it's got the sort of the biggest university and everything and it's quite it got kind of relaxed bohemian feel to it I went to a food festival there which was absolutely fantastic Um, and then of course we have Riga which is as you know is absolutely stunning you've got Mm. it's much bigger than Tallinn it's kind of the biggest and most kind of vibrant place I think we we went to because I mean as soon as you drove into Riga we were kind of shell-shocked because the driving is so crazy (laughs) (laughs) it's a very fast-paced city I don't know if that's how you
0: saw it or I, I moved there from moscow so it seemed a little sleepy to
1: me Really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, the estonian countryside maybe that's but why. i do
0: i do think it's i do think it's very vibrant and dynamic and of course the food scene there is astonishingly fabulous i mean the the just the central market is amazing
1: absolutely and then there's another kind of trendy market as well where uh, you know you have house music and kind of you know uh-huh. kind of young people go as well and there's just there's a lot going on there and then you have the beautiful old town the unesco world heritage site and then you also have obviously the uh the art nouveau mm-hmm. buildings which are beautiful as well which is it's known for um and then if you go to Vilnius, which is also one of my favorite places i mean i fell in love with Vilnius immediately it's when you drive in, you feel like you're driving in somewhere like Rome because you have the Baroque architecture that's so grand. And yet, when you're walking around, it's it got a very villagey kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's got all these little hill- rolling hills and oh, it's
0: gorgeous yeah. and a
1: stream and the ducks waddling about. And then you have <laughs> beautiful Baroque churches. Some of them are completely renewed because there was a big movement to renew everything. But then on the outskirts, you sort of see some kind of crumbling, which, which has got a certain kind of, you know, glamour to it as well. Faded glamour to it as well. Um, and I found the same about, um, Lithuania's second city, Kaunas. As well, which also there's that sort of faded glamour aspect to it. It's a little bit raw, but then it's got this very vibrant street art scene as well. So I think, in terms of all the Baltic states, I would say it's somewhere between the Slavic countries and Scandinavia, with its own kind of Baltic regional spirit as well. And Mm -hmm. those influences have been felt throughout time. For example, before the Baltic states were the Baltic states, in the Middle Ages, you had the Hanseatic League, for example, which was, um, you know, a trading alliance for which was all kind of the the Baltic, um, many Baltic cities, but also it stretched up towards Sweden and towards the Netherlands, and it included some Polish cities as well. So you also had always had that trade between the countries, so that influence was kind of being felt. You know, and you have all the herrings that you have in Sweden. Like <laughs> that's very common in the Baltic countries. Um, so there was a kind of a lot of mixing mixing um, throughout history, as, as there tends to be, and food really is a reflection of that, um, I guess, in any country. Um, and then in terms of the Baltic countries, in terms of the history, I would say Lithuania and Poland obviously have a lot of shared history because he had the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and then you had the Baltic Germans who um, who were the ruling classes in a lot of Latvia and Estonia as well mm-hmm. so you had that kind of uh, german influence there as well and you know and a lot of the balts were actually serfs so they, you know they really had to fight for their rights and their language and things like that um, throughout time and and then of course when they became the Baltic states after that we all know what happened in the beginning of mm. the 20th century we had the Soviets and the Nazis and, uh, and they had to go through a lot of hard times until really until the late 80s and then I would say the 90s were completely wild in those countries as well um, as in Poland because after communism it's very difficult to get a system in place that works but finally i feel like they have they have done that in different ways in different countries and they they're really starting to shine
0: mhm well and, and so i think we'll soon see ad- advertisements f- for you know beautiful latvia you know where it is <laughs> <laughs> Might i want to ask while, hopefully I, I i hope so <laughs> although i i i selfishly want to keep it kind of a secret because it is it is so lovely to be there um and and kind of just enjoy uh it's very not It seems to be very natural. It's not terribly touristy, yeah. Um, in these places, and I think that's really refreshing.
1: Oh, it's you know I know exactly how you feel. When I was in Kaunas, uh, in the second city of Lithuania, I mean, you know, there's not many people that go to Kaunas. I mean, even Vilnius, no one knows where it is, but Kaunas. But actually, it's one of the European uh, cities of culture. Uh-huh. Uh, it's going to be in 2022, so I think things are going to change. Oh, good. And good. You can see, it's all being kind of modernised, and yet, you know, all the trams at the moment are covered in street art. Each tram, each one of the old trams, is like a work of art. And now it's oh, going to be replaced by new trams, mm. <laughs> which are, you know, very modern. I'm sure very comfortable. But it's it's going to change.
0: It's going to lose a little something, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I want to ask you um, about your process of writing this book. Um, how much research went into this before you took your epic journey uh, to the three, the three Baltic states? And how did you go about doing that research? Did you talk to people or were you st- st- holed up in libraries? Um, what was what was your process?
1: Um Well, I always head to the library first. I've spent so so much time in libraries. Uh, With my first book, it was the British Library this time. Yes, also the British Library because I love that building. But I'm now doing a PhD at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies, which is a part of UCL. And they have a wonderful library, which is absolutely perfect if you're researching any kind of Eastern European country. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did a lot of research in the libraries. But also about, um, I think, three years ago now, there was a big move to translate a lot of uh, Baltic literature. And so I just bought lots of books online as well, um, just Baltic literature, because I wanted to read up on it and to kind of – Get a feeling of kind of where you know m- modern culture is at now, you know, and how it got there. So, uh, a lot of reading first of all, and then of course I start speaking to people that have been to those countries or are from those countries, and you start sort of getting your recommendations and um, making kind of a loose plan before you go on your on your journey, and then the journey itself you know, it feels like it takes on a life of its own in a way because Mm -hmm. we only had loose plans and yet we just met the right people at the right time and saw the right things. For example, after I left Tallinn on the way to the Estonian countryside, I was thinking, oh gosh, I should have stayed in Tallinn for longer because this is where it's all going on. But I arrived in the middle of a forest, in the middle of nowhere, and I found out that 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 evening, literally in about an hour... All the local food producers and um, yeah, and cafes and galleries were opening the doors and having an open, um, like a house cafe.
0: Oh, right? fantastic!
1: Yeah, so very
0: serendipitous.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, and this is in the middle of nowhere, so we were just driving from village to village, and everywhere people were sort of opening their homes and oh, singing amazing. folk music and making their favorite dishes. And, you know, I learned so much. That
0: sounds that sounds fantastic. Now, do you speak any of the Baltic languages? I know you speak Polish and obviously English. What other languages do you speak?
1: Um, well, a little bit of French.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't speak any of the... So Pol- you're relying on the, the Baltic propensity to speak really good English? Which they do, actually. They yeah. do.
1: A bit like <laughs> Scandinavia, yeah. They really do. Uh, well, especially the younger generations. Um But, um, yes, so all the languages, all the Baltic languages are completely different, actually. Estonian is kind of like, a bit like Finnish. It's very complicated. It's not Slavic at all. Um, Lithuanian and Latvian are closer to one another, a bit more Slavic. And yet uh, Lithuanian is an ancient language, I think, as old as Sanskrit. And I love the sound of it. And I found out that my grandma spoke fluent Lithuanian, which I didn't know, actually. Oh, yeah, 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 and, uh, yeah. I wish I did know a little bit of Lithuanian because I, I've really kind of the sound of it is just sort of. It's very musical
0: in a way, isn't it? Yes, yes. Well, never too late. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> never too late. And now I want our listeners to know um, that. Part of so much of the book, um, you describe ha- having you had a research assistant along with you, which is your three-year-old, um, and I wonder what it's like. It's a very temperamental research Yeah, to be to be um, traveling with with a three-year-old and trying to to you know re- absorb all of this yeah. information.
1: Um, it, it was not easy, but uh, I'm really glad we did it because oh, good. I think for her, even though she doesn't remember a lot of it. I still feel that on some level it opens her up and it teaches her something on a deeper level. Um, the process itself was not easy because um, her father and I were both working. Um, my partner was um, taking the photo- doing the photography for the book. So that's why we have lots of beautiful travel photographs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was, you know, trying to write things down and research and, you know, writing down everything we were eating and uh, the atmosphere. So I don't forget because it's so easy just to focus on the child when you're somewhere. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So Sometimes I'll just have to run off for an hour and just be like, okay, stop the photography. Just look after her so I can just (laughs) get the atmosphere. What's what's going on here (laughs) in the outer world? But it was so wonderful. And now after the whole lockdown, I mean, this was the last time I went anywhere further away for a longer trip. So I I think I look at it through rose tinted glasses now, because despite kind of all the meltdowns and all the difficulty, it was just such a magical trip.
0: Oh, I'm so glad because it, it looks very bucolic and idyllic and wonderful. But you know, having had a three year old myself, uh, in tow, I, I know it's I know it can be really challenging, um, but very delightful. Let's let's jump into the book now, Susan, because I feel like I feel like um, you know I I want to talk uh, so much about the food, um, which is such a big part of the book. And I want to start by uh, something you said earlier, that, that these, these Baltic cuisines kind of slot between New Nordic, the sort of the, the revolution in Scandinavian cuisine, and Slavic Eastern European. And I wonder if for our listeners, you could kind of expand on that idea. Uh,
1: I think I touched on it before with sort of the Hanseatic League mm. and how uh, these countries around the Baltic all kind of influenced one another and uh, throughout history. So I think um, there's definitely an element of that there. Um, And I think there are those two elements for sure, just to help people understand the the kind of broader spectrum. And yet there is something very Baltic, which I really wanted to focus on in the book as well, all the kind of uh, local traditions that aren't known in any other country. For example, the hemp butter, yeah, mm. or the Kama in Estonia. I haven't come across that anywhere else. Um, can you can you describe that a little bit in more detail? Absolutely. Um, it's so
0: so delicious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> kamma is one of my favourite things, and so is Latvian hemp butter for that um, for that matter. So uh, kamma is a mixture of grains, like a rye, barley, could be oats. Uh, often they put peas in there as well. I've done two versions in my book because I did a sort of simplified version without the peas and then I did kind of a more traditional version with the peas as well but then obviously you have to cook the peas for a little bit um and then uh, the grains are kind of um say soaked some people might cook them for a little bit and then they are roasted so Mm -hmm. they have this wonderful multi-flavor to them and then they're ground up into a flour but it's not a flour you really cook with it's uh they put this flour in kefir, for example, maybe with a little bit of honey or some salt if they like it salty um, for kind of a quick snack or some people just have it for breakfast. Um, so I loved experimenting with that. They often put it in sweet desserts nowadays as well. That's like the modern um, Baltic element to it, you know, in all the kind of fancy restaurants, you'll find um, kamma in the desserts because it's such an Estonian thing. Someone described this to me as the most Estonian food.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the most Estonian thing ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but it's 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 everywhere you go in Estonia they have it, and it's and at first it's very confusing what it what it actually is. But it, it has you're right. The multi flavor is very specific.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's that multi flavor. So I I made it into a kind of like a easy ice cream, and I think that works really well. And and and, and there's a breakfast thing as well. Uh-huh um which is what they do but then I sort of made it a little bit more a little bit more me and then you have uh, what starts the book which is the Latvian hemp butter which is kind of the most traditional Latvian thing which has been used for centuries um because it's it preserves really well so it's uh toasted and then uh, ground up uh hemp seeds and you can use a little bit of hemp oil as well in there. If you don't have hemp oil, just any kind of mild oil would do. Um, sometimes you don't even need oil. It kind of depends on how uh, moist they are. But I, I always add a little bit and a little bit of salt.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: it's sort of a naturally vegan product. Um, and I traveled with a hemp butter. Someone gave it to me in Riga. And I traveled throughout the whole Baltics with it for about over three weeks and bought it home. Nothing and happened. Using it, and <laughs> using it at home. So it does, you know, without a fridge, it does preserve really well. You can, of course, mix it with a little bit of butter as well if you want to do that. But I quite like it in its natural state on toast with some either condensed milk or some honey or something like that. Um, but then I also loved experimenting with it as well. So I made hemp butter cookies and things like that with it.
0: Well, and it, and it comes through in the book. It's beautifully photographed, by the way. Oh, um, just looks you. so so. So appealing, so um, delicious.
1: Oh, that's Ola. Ola I had a lovely team working for me. Uh, my Polish friend Ola was the photographer and uh, and her team were absolutely fantastic. I feel like there's a real warmth to the photos.
0: Yes, it feels like you could just sit down and, and kind of enjoy. It's not very staged. It yeah. seems very natural. Yeah, yeah now the the structure of the book follows the conventional kind of soup to nuts, but um, you you I think had a wonderful way of of um, putting in really interesting essays about the times in that you spent in the in the major cities. Did the structure occur to you naturally or did that sort of come together once you had everything done or how how did you go about crafting the book
1: yeah it's interesting because I mean um, I guess the the most obvious thing would be to go, oh, this is this is Lithuanian food, this is Latvian food, and this is Estonian food. Um, but I guess I wanted to make it more organic in a way, in a way, uh, the way that um, things aren't so strictly divided. You have those regional products, but a lot of the ingredients that the uh, Baltic states use, they have in common, the curd cheeses, the rye, the barley... Uh, you know, the uh, kasha grutana, which is the buckwheat growth and the kvass and birch, things like this. So so I thought it was more organic and more natural to uh, sort of divide it by breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then delve into all the specifics of the countries uh, as I go along. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I did have that structure in mind from the beginning, because that just felt like the most natural structure to me, and then um, and then things kind of just naturally slotted into that. I would have changed it if it didn't work, but it felt like it worked really well as I wrote the book.
0: And and the recipes in the book, um, you've put your own kind of spin on a number of classics and traditional dishes. And I wonder if if you would share with us how you go about doing that. How do you make a? How do you discover something and then make it your own? That's an interesting question.
1: Um, I think it's different for every recipe in a way. So, for example, um, something like, let me just have a little think. Okay, so, yes. So, for example, some recipes I don't change at all. Like um, I have uh, Greta's Medutis honey layer cake, which is from Greta. Mm -hmm. Uh, a Lithuanian and actually I do have my own way of making it at home without the soured cream I use the mascarpone which she Mm -hmm. uses as a topping between the layers (laughs) 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 I really like doing that however I changed um, I went against changing it in the book I wanted to keep it as her recipe Mm
0: -hmm. um,
1: in the book so sometimes I'm very true to what I'm given um, as in that case Other times, I have to change things a little bit. For example, Madara's little fish bake. Oh, gosh, I had such a problem with the little fish because (laughs) (laughs) Um, they weren't – the sprats weren't in season. And, Mm -hmm. uh, gosh, it's, it's just different. You know, fish are different in each country and you know i tried it with frozen fish i tried it with something else and it just did not work and i contacted madara and i said i really want to have this recipe in there but i'm having problems she said why don't you just try a tin and i did that i would never thought of that myself it worked perfectly so mm-hmm. so that was just a little change and then of course something like the latvian hemp butter which i talked about of course that recipe I didn't touch it's an ancient Latvian recipe you have to start with the basic and then once I had that I went on to make it my own so for example I made the hemp butter cookies with it because it just works so well and I, I literally make those cookies all the time now and um give them to everyone as a gift because it's such a unique flavor people that don't mm-hmm. even like sweet things like them and um it's a way of introducing that flavor um to people's palate in a kind of really easy way.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and, and tell me, this, do you have a favorite of, of all these recipes? Or is that like asking which of your children you prefer?
1: Yeah, it would be very difficult <laughs> to choose a favorite. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are some very special rep- recipes to me that are close to my heart. For example, the plum butter, you know, the simplest recipe. Mm. And yet this is where the journey started. It was in my grandma's um cupboard she had this big mahogany cupboard with all these sort of silk scarves and leather gloves and amber necklaces in it and under it she had um rows and rows of plum butter Uh and uh and I would always take one out and open it up and she would always test it to see if it was okay and uh, this is my Lithuanian grandma's kind of home and this is where really I mean I didn't know that was starting then but that's what that's what kind of ignited that spark for the Baltics mm-hmm. for me so that's a very special recipe and then and then you just have things that you know I learned along the way like the Kama and the hemp butter which which I'm now addicted to so uh-huh. yeah so I mean if, if it was what I cook the most, it would definitely be those cookies <laughs> all the
0: time. They do sound delicious. I, ha- I have, I've, I haven't tried that recipe, but I'm. It's definitely in in on my list of ones that I'd want to try. Oh, I hope um, you do. Oh, I will do. Um, I want to touch on something else that comes through in the book very, um, very much, which is the pagan beliefs that you discover, mm-hmm. particularly in Lithuania. I think. Um, there are a lot of different um, ethnic cultures in the Baltic States, aside from, you know, traditional Latvian, Lithuanian, mm-hmm. Jewish culture was very strong before World War II, and it just, you know, was just destroyed. Mm-hmm. What other what are some of the culinary influences that are outside the Baltic um, that you discovered while you were there?
1: That were Sorry, that were outside the Baltic.
0: That that are not um, traditionally Latvian. I'm thinking of Jewish, uh, maybe Central Asian, um, some of those that are kind of ancillary.
1: Um, well, that's a little bit of a difficult one because it's so mixed up. You know, it's very difficult uh, to kind of um, put your finger on it. But first of all, um, let me address the pagan beliefs. Yeah. Um, because... You're absolutely right. Pagan beliefs were so strong and are still very strongly felt in all three countries. And I think this is one of the things that actually ties the Baltic states together. It's a very deep connection to nature, which I feel like comes from their inherent pagan beliefs, which were really attacked by the Teutonic Knights, especially in Estonia and Latvia. The Teutonic Knights were really brutal, and they—it was—it was the Crusades, basically. Um, but actually, Lithuania too, because the first um, big ruler of Lithuania invited all the different cultures to settle on Lithuanian land as long as they respected Lithuanian pagan beliefs, excluding the Teutonic Knights because they were so brutal and so hated throughout the whole area. Um, so, so I think that's something that actually ties them together. And even though maybe on the outside, you know, especially Thuania, Lithuania is very um, uh, Christian now, very Catholic, just as Poland, because uh, through the marriage of um, the Polish queen and the pagan Lithuanian king, uh, Lithuania took on Christ- Christianity willingly, uh, which kind of helped against the Teutonic Knights. So even on the outside, you have, christianity um i feel like on the inside you still have certain pagan rituals and um and just that kind of connection that that's very pagan and in estonia actually uh, most people think feel that they don't have a religion and yet they also feel that trees do have souls
0: mm
1: That's a very, they do. <laughs> yeah, that's a very strong belief in Estonia. And when I mentioned it at a dinner party of my Latvian friends, um, you know, they, that's exactly what they said. They said, of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> that's why there's trees in all the cemeteries. Right. Yeah. So stars- and I
0: love the way in the some of the, some of the things that I've seen um, in the Baltic states, they're they're kind of reviving these traditional festivals that have pagan origins and really getting into um, those those kind of things, those traditions and those holidays and and the food that goes with it. It's really delightful to see.
1: Absolutely. I think it's wonderful to have that revival. and right now, this is what's wonderful. We have freedom and they have freedom. Mm. And they can express and explore all those old ways, which uh, which are part of their being. Really, there's no Mm -hmm. need to kind of hide who they are anymore. They can talk their language, explore the food, explore their old traditions. They don't have to be anything. So that's really wonderful at the moment. And yes, those countries were very cosmopolitan before the Second World War. Vilnius, my grandma talks. About as being very uh, kind, open, cosmopolitan place. So it was a, a huge tragedy uh, what happened there, not only for the people but for the culture as well. Um, when it comes to the food, I think it's difficult to um, to take apart what influences come from where. I once talked to a, a Jewish restaurateur, and I was saying, "Gosh, we have a lot of influences in Poland from Jewish." food and he said i think it's the other way around actually i think mm. jewish people took influences also from polish uh, food and what was there and the ingredients so it's it's difficult to say what came from where um, mm-hmm. i have latkes uh, latke in the book yeah Latski. i call them by that just because that's what they're known as in the world um uh, but I, I combine them with sausage, which I, you know, <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> like, like well, that's strange if it's a Jewish thing, right? But I'm like, it's uh, I'm just calling them that because yes, it, it is a Jewish thing, and it's and it's from that from those places as well. I think mm-hmm. it, it's very difficult to divide divide the, and separate the the two.
0: And I wonder um, if you sense any. Remaining vine- like a like a sort of veneer from the Soviet culinary um, eras um, in the three states. I sometimes pick up a tiny bit of nostalgia for it. It's not it's not very strong, um, but I think it's there.
1: I think you're absolutely right. It is there it's in the younger generations that don't remember, it, of course, mm. because <laughs> <laughs> because you know when you experience it, you're not going to want to go back to that, and yet. It's a, um, it's a reinterpretation, I think. And it's a, an absorbing of that part of history. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember in Poland, there was a time when they wanted to knock down the Palace of Culture, because it was gifted to Poland from uh, Moscow, or, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. there was a moment when people, some people, wanted to tear it down, and there was a massive outcry. And I was so appalled at this history being destroyed because you can't, you don't want to destroy history. It's mm-hmm. it happened. You need to uh, absorb it and learn from it. And and yeah, that also involves the food. So there are some really fun Soviet classics, but you know, were they invented by the Soviets? Probably not. They came from somewhere else, but they were. Kind of, you know, used to kind of symbolize so so right. food at one point, and then and now they're being reimagined again. Yeah,
0: right. And that's I think that's very healthy because um, yeah. food is such an enduring part of tradition and history. And um, yeah. and it one one thing I do I do find about Russia is that it's it can be very politically uh, against a, a region. Mm-hmm. but it absorbs its food with no hesitation so it's very russia's very ecumenical about um you know it, it cannot have new year's eve without latvian sprats um but it has a <laughs> tense relationship with latvia
1: <laughs> politically well, i think it probably sort of <laughs> i think there's an element of like yes you're i mean i used to have a russian friend and he used to talk about poland like because he used to know it annoyed me like our little brothers, yes, yes, right. right. Our little <laughs> you know, Slavic
0: brothers, you're
1: just part of us, you know. <laughs> you just don't know it.
0: You're just rebellious. And, y- and you will be again.
1: <laughs> yes, it's not
0: necessary to rebel. You know, you'll come back. <laughs> right. I don't think so. Attitude, um, yeah. And finally, because um, our time is is coming to an end, but I I want to ask you what surprised and delighted you um, as you researched and wrote wrote this wonderful book
1: um what surprised and delighted me gosh there were so many things I think it was the synchronicity of the journey itself and I strongly believe that it's because I was meant to be writing that book you know everything that happened felt like it was the book revealing itself to me so the for example the house cafes in Estonia I didn't know anything about them when when I went, and yet I came across them in three different places. Um, and, and will you describe
0: you know, will you describe what that is because I'm not sure absolutely. um people will have encountered that in other parts of the world. I think it's very uniquely estonian
1: it's it's wonderful. So people, um just ordinary people open their homes. And there's always some kind of a sign, or maybe there's some kind of like a wider festival it can be a part of, or, the communities just kind of decided themselves. There's a wonderful sense of community there, like even in the countryside with all the villages and things, um, which apparently took a while because after communism, everything was so organized. And then um, the Estonians were telling me it took a while to organize themselves into a sense of actually being able to do stuff like this. Um, so they come together and they, and whoever wants to opens up their house and all their neighbors come round. Uh, any kind of tourist everyone is welcome mm-hmm. so you know for them I think it, it's it's a big treat having people from another country come around because you know they're showing off all their favorite dishes and they're selling things for example they could be selling sprats there could be another store selling something else or it could be just uh, it's it's organized in various ways because there could be like a gallery for example um like a local gallery that's opened up and then you have sort of a concert and various different people selling different things local blackberry wine someone else selling their favorite cake or it could just be someone's home and then they just prepare a few things that they want to kind of show off and it's each home is different each place that you go to is completely different you could be at a farm then you could be at a gallery and then just at someone's house and everyone's very welcoming and wants to show you what they cook, which is all their produce
0: that they produce. So Oh, it, sound, it just sounds delightful.
1: That was absolutely wonderful. It was my favorite thing completely because there's one thing going to a restaurant and it's another thing going to someone's home. Indeed. Yes, yeah, so I found uh, the Baltic people so hospitable anyway. But in Estonia... I literally managed to visit huge amounts of homes of people I didn't even know because they were just, you know, there was some balloons sticking up outside and I was like, oh, let's go in there. Like, uh, in we go. go <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah. Um, now, Susan, what's what's next for you? Um, having conquered the Baltic states, um, yeah. where are you off to next? Um, I'm back off to my homeland
1: again. huh. Um, yeah, I have two books in the pipeline, actually. Uh, one of them I've literally just signed the deal for, so I can't talk about as yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one I haven't quite revealed yet, so I'm going to be a little bit enigmatic and mysterious about it. But I will tell you that today I am making a pierogi. Oh,
0: fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I hope that when you can be less enigmatic, you might come back and, and tell us about the new books. I would absolutely love that. Oh, that would be great. Um, This has been such a fascinating discussion, and I know that listeners will enjoy uh, getting their hands on Amber and Rye. It's a beautiful book filled with lovely photographs and really fantastic recipes, and it's it's also a great read. Um, So it's been wonderful having you on to talk more about the Baltic states. Before I let you go, could you tell listeners where they can find you in the Um, internet and and where to um, follow you on social media
1: absolutely i would say instagram is my biggest place i'm there all the time i find the community just wonderful and nourishing and i'm at zuza zach cooks and uh, my book is out in early september with interlink in the u.s Mm -hmm.
0: and it'll be available wherever great books are sold well thank you zuza for joining me today
1: Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva. I'll be back soon to discuss another new book with its author. Thank you for listening.